listening to the Women's Online Wellness Podcast, a podcast all about your health and wellness issues that affect you every day. We want to educate, entertain, and maybe make you giggle a little along the way. No annoying statistics or jargon here, just information you can use every day to be healthier, happier, and less boring. All right, here's your host, OBGYN Dr. Ron Eaker. everybody and welcome to another edition of Thirsty Thursday Women's Online Wellness. Welcome to all our new members. Again, we've got an influx of new members over the last week since our last Facebook Live and I want to welcome you. I want to tell you again, go back and use the resources on this page. Go back and find the videos and the files and everything that we've got on there to use as reference. Uh, Please engage and enjoy being a part of this Uh, get together where we can share ideas and hopefully have some fun while we do it. Well, tonight especially is going to be fun. I mean, how can you not have fun talking about wee-wee? My wife hates it when I say that, but I I was a parent with two small kids for a long time, and that's what I called it. But tonight we're talking about bladder issues. We're talking about problems associated with the female bladder. And if you're a female chances are real good you've had bladder issues. They just seem to go hand in hand. And we'll talk a little bit about why that is because it's important for you to understand. But we're going to cover some things uh, very common that happen to women. And we're going to talk about some stuff that I think might surprise you because I continue to see people day in and day out in the office who are having some issues that really are completely opposite of what they think they are. And I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes, and it may just apply to you. So hopefully this will be something that will be meaningful to you. We're going to talk about problems, but we're also going to talk about solutions. So the first thing I want to do is cover some of the common issues associated with the bladder in women. And probably the number one issue is urinary tract infections. If you're a female and you've never had a bladder infection, you are one lucky gal, let me tell you, because that's probably one of the number one complaints we get in our office on a daily basis is urinary tract infections. Now, let me make a quick distinction. I use that term kind of synonymous with bladder infections, but they're really not the same. The urinary tract is really the kidneys, the ureters, the bladder. A bladder infection means just an infection in the bladder and in the urethra area. A, A urinary tract infection could mean anything. It could mean the kidneys. It could be... Yeah, anything related, there's, there's a separate category called pyelonephritis, which is a kidney infection. That's a whole different kettle of fists. That's a lot more rare. Most, it's, it's a little re- more rare, except in pregnancy. When you're pregnant, getting kidney infections is unfortunately a very common thing. But as you get older, that's not as common. What happens in pregnancy is that big old uterus pushes on the tubes that connect the kidney to the bladder, and it makes the urine kind of uh, back up a little bit, and the urine gets a little bacteria in it, and because it can't flow free, it gets backed up in the kidney because of that big old uterus pushing on it. And so pregnant women are at much greater risk for pyelonephritis or kidney infections, and that can be a real problem. That can cause some serious issues, and we really treat that aggressively in pregnant pregnant women. But in non-pregnant women, the classic symptoms of frequent urination, going, uh, having that urgency even after you've just gone, uh, burning when you urinate. Those are probably the classic. You, 
lower pelvic abdominal pain, sometimes even fevers, although usually with bladder infections you don't run a fever. That's when we start thinking about infections in the kidney. Uh, but you can also have some blood in the urine sometimes. That's very common with bladder infections. But they're exceedingly common, especially in women, because of the way you're made. I know, I know, I'm not being sexist or racist or anything else. I'm just telling you that's the truth. The urethra, the tube from the outside to the bladder in a female, is very small. Sometimes it's, it's, it's as short as four centimeters, which is real small. So it's very easy for bacteria to crawl up through there, put up camp in the bladder, and set up an infection. Urine is normally sterile. There's usually not supposed to be bacteria in the bladder, in the urine. All that's supposed to be sterile. But if bacteria get in there, it's very easy for them to take hold and set up an infection when they overgrow. And here's a little pearl. One of the most common causes of bacterial infections in the bladder is sex. There, I said it. I'm probably going to be censored because I use the word sex on Facebook. Forgive me, Zuckerman. But anyway, one of the most common problems associated with frequent intercourse is frequent bladder infections. Well, why? Because that little urethra is so short and it's so easy with the friction and with the interaction involved in intercourse for that bacteria to be introduced. See, the vagina is full of bacteria. There's the big difference. The vagina has gobs of bacteria in it. I mean, it's just full of bacteria, which is normal. That's okay. Don't, don't freak out. That's normal. But it's full of bacteria, and that bacteria can sometimes easily get up into the bladder. And when that happens, it's really what we call, kind of jokingly years ago, honeymoon cystitis. It's very common when people are just initiating sexual activity. It's common when people change partners because there sometimes can be a different bacteria contamination in the, in the vaginal canal. It's real, real common in the menopause, real common, because the normal bacteria that existed in the vaginal canal during the premenopausal time is different from the bacteria that exist in the postmenopause. So it's very easy between the dryness and the irritation, the discomfort, the change in pH, all those things contribute to an increased chance of getting bladder infections in the menopause. Now we can change that, we can correct that, we can make that better by using things that correct that pH, whether it's natural substances like uh, baking soda douches or vinegar douches or using topical estrogen or even the Mona Lisa Touch laser. All that can help in the menopause to reduce if you're one of those that get infections frequently from intercourse. The other trick that we use is what we call prophylactic antibiotics. If someone consistently shows, not just one time, but consistently over and over again, shows problems associated after intercourse, they get the frequency, urgency burning, and truly have a urinary tract infection, then a very simple solution is taking a single dose of an antibiotic, either right before or right after intercourse, and that oftentimes prevents that bacteria. It sterilizes that urine to keep that bacteria from overgrowing. So it creates an environment so you don't have all that. And, and, and gosh, I mean, this is something that's real and it's something we don't want to ignore because it can interfere with the relationship. I mean, I have folks all the time who talk about 
they just don't even want to do anything because they know what's going to happen. It's no fun when it hurts. Believe me, after you've had one, you don't want to have another one. So it's uncomfortable. It's painful. So it's something to be taken seriously. So we do. But that is a very effective tool for helping to prevent those frequent uh, occurrences. And uh, <laughs> I, I got a chuckle. I had I had a patient uh, a, a while back who was who was uh, having so many issues that we we almost got in trouble using the antibiotic too often. Now I'll tell you that's more the exception than the rule. Most of the time I can write folks a script for ten or twelve doses and they're good for the year. That's another issue. We're not going to touch on that tonight. But just know that that is a common issue, common treatment. The next thing I want to tell about urinary tract infections is the bacteria that commonly call those, cause those can be varied. They can be different. So just because you're given an antibiotic to treat a bladder infection doesn't necessarily mean it's going to take care of the problem. If that organism is resistant to that particular antibiotic, for example, say I give you a sulfa drug like Septra, a very common antibiotic we use for bladder infections. And there are some there are some bacteria that just, puh, they laugh. They see Septra, they giggle. And bring it on, no sweat. I'm going to override this. It's not going to touch me. And they just go on their merry way. So you take all this antibiotic and you don't feel any better. Well, when that occurs, the really the best thing at that point is to get what we call a urine culture and sensitivity. And that's where we can actually culture the particular bacteria who's being the pain in the you know what and see what it's sensitive to, see what antibiotic it actually will be killed by. And that keeps you from having to take multiple courses of antibiotics over and over again. I see people in the office all the time who come in and they say they went to a doc in a box and they just uh, maybe dipped a urine or they just talked to them and they gave them an antibiotic and it just didn't really seem to do the job. And they do that multiple times before they come in and say, well, you know, what's, what's going on here? There's some, a problem. Oftentimes, it's simply a resistant strain. And that's why we oftentimes ask you if you call in and say, I have a bladder infection. A lot of you know. You've had them before and you know and we, we trust that and we want to try to accommodate that. But we also know that sometimes those symptoms can be deceiving. And unless we can actually look at that urine and send it for a culture, we may not be doing you that big a service by just calling something in. So don't get mad at me if we ask you to come in and get a urine because we're really doing it. We're looking out for you. But bladder infections are probably second or third on the rank of, of common complaints. And, and if you've never had one, God bless you. That's wonderful. But it's, it's really rare in women to go through your life and not have one of those issues. Now, I want to dovetail that in to a discussion of something you might not be aware of, but it's very important, and I'm beginning to see it much more frequently. And that's a condition that absolutely mimics bladder infection, but has nothing to do with infection. And that's a condition called an overactive bladder. And that's a real problem for a lot of women, especially as you get older. Used to, folks didn't even know that existed. It was not even on the radar because it was, it was not something that was well known and it was something that was mainly limited to experimental. Now I'm talking about years ago. I mean, we know a lot about it now. But the bottom line is someone who, here's the, here's the classic picture. Here's, here's the person I see all the time, is they will come in and say, 
either they've had a bunch of bladder infections, say they've had six bladder infections in the last 10 months or six months, or they've had a, an infection, they took antibiotic and it got better and then they had another one right next to it. And I classically hear that someone will come in and say, I've been, you know, had these bladder infections. And what happens a lot of times is they will, because they're having the burning, because they're having the irritation, because they're having the frequency, because they're having the urgency, they naturally make that assumption. And that's, that's, a, that's a normal assumption. You're not a bad person for doing that. That's a normal thing to think. But those are exactly the same kind of symptoms that this overactive bladder can give. What is the overactive bladder? What, what the heck is that? That is a infl inflammation of the bladder where the, the bladder muscle spasms. Now, there's a lot of overlap between this and a condition called interstitial cystitis. Technically, they're not the same thing, but they're close enough to the same thing that it's almost impossible to differentiate those except by looking in the bladder, and that's not something folks like to have done. So I'm going to talk a little bit about interstitial cystitis, but just know that if somebody comes to me and they've had multiple urinary tract infections or suspected urinary tract infections or the symptoms and they feel horrible and they're peeing all the time and it's burning and they hate it and it's interfering with their life and they've got this pelvic pain and they go see the doctor and the doctor says your urine's clean, your urine's culture is sterile, there's no infection there and you're saying, but why do I hurt? Why do I pee every five minutes? Why can't I go out to eat without going to the toilet 16 times? You very well could have either this overactive bladder or this interstitial cystitis condition. And let me make the differentiation so you understand very clearly. Overactive bladder is essentially where the bladder gets super irritated. It's not an infection, so antibiotics do absolutely nothing for it, but it gets irritated so that it spasms. And when it spasms, you get this urgency, you get this sense of having to go, even though sometimes you go and there's hardly anything there. You can get pelvic pain, that's a classic symptom. But again, it's a problem associated with the bladder muscle. The bladder is just a big, thin muscle. If you looked at it in surgery, you just see this big, thin muscle, flimsy thing. It's like a balloon. I mean, it literally looks like a balloon when it gets blown up with urine. But in this particular condition, the nerve pathways associated with the bladder, the bladder muscle, they malfunction and things can trigger spasms and that's what creates the symptoms of urinary tract infection. Incredibly more common than I think we understand at this point because we naturally assume everybody has a bladder infection, but it's not. You could give antibiotics all day long and it's not going to help this. What does? Well, there's a lot of medications. There's probably six or seven You've probably seen a bunch of them advertised on TV because the drug companies have discovered, whoa, there's a whole bunch of folks out there with this problem. There's a lot of money to be made in those bladders. So now they've picked up on the idea, done their research, come up with these drugs, which are really quite effective. There's a number of different drugs, oxybutynin, Vesicare, Tovias, Mirbatrec. I mean, there's, there's probably six or seven now that are available to treat this particular condition. 
And it's so important that you make the right diagnosis because you could be going on and taking antibiotics after antibiotics and uracid and peridium and all this other stuff, and it's not going to touch this issue. We do know there are certain things that make that worse, like we know caffeine can create some problems with that. We know that sometimes acidic fruit juices, certain foods, red wine, boo-hoo, some things can really create that spasm, and it varies from person to person. So you have to be sensitive. You have to think about, okay, when am I having these symptoms? Is it correlated with some, some, type, of, uh, some type of nutritional thing? Hey, Diane, hey, uh, uh, Daria, Lois, Lana, I'm just, I can actually see my messages down here. So if you're watching and you do have some questions, feel free to put them up. I finally figured out how to answer questions and see them on the screen. So it's great to see you guys, and we appreciate y'all being here. There's a whole bunch of folks coming in now. We really, it's great to see you. If you have some questions, I'm going to get to those, so be sure you type them in and post them because I, uh, I supposedly am going to be able to see those. Um, but uh, as I was saying, there are a variety of medications that are helpful. Now, like any medicine, there are potential side effects, pluses and minuses. But the good thing about this particular condition is it's not always going to be with you. In most cases, it kind of waxes and wanes. And it's one of those things that's on and off. So we can treat it for a while. It gets much better. Life is good. Yeah. And then it gets bad again. Well, you go back on the treatment at that point. Luckily, most of these medicines are minimal in side effects, maybe a little bit of constipation, uh, dry mouth. Those are the big ones. But you got to be careful not to combine them with other medicines. It could be a problem. So overactive bladder, real problem. If you are constantly having problems associated with uh, bladder type symptoms, number one, get it checked. Make sure that's what it is. And if it's not, think about these other conditions. Now, the, I mentioned interstitial cystitis. That's kind of a specialized category. It gives exactly the same symptoms. I mean, pain, frequency, urgency, burning, pelvic discomfort. You usually don't get things like fevers, or but you can feel lousy. It is actually a problem with the lining of the bladder itself. So that's why I was saying that you got to get somebody to look in with a little tube in your bladder to look at the lining on the inside. And there's a characteristic appearance that we see when we look in there to say, yeah, this is interstitial cystitis. Again, it's, I use the term itis. When you, when you see cystitis, whenever you hear itis, you think infection. No, this is not an infection. It's an inflammation. It's like if you, you cut your finger and it, uh, it gets sore and it gets red and infected, that's a bacteria causing that. But if you have arthritis in your joint and it gets sore and red and inflamed, that is an inflammation. That's a big difference, important difference. You could take antibiotics for your infection. It's not going to help your arthritis. Same thing happens in the bladder. Make that distinction. Interstitial cystitis gives exactly the same symptoms as urinary tract infections and bladder infections, but antibiotics will do nothing for it. Will not help. No good. No way. Waste your money. Kill your gut microbiota. Don't do it. But sometimes that's hard to know until you get checked properly and get everything evaluated. What, do you, what, what really is interstitial, interstitial cystitis? Well, the way I describe it to folks is if you were looking at the lining of the bladder, it's like it has all these little potholes in it, these little divots. It'd be like you're driving down the road and, and you hit the big pothole. Well, that's kind of what the inside of the bladder looks like. So with all these little potholes, it makes anything like urine or anything that gets into the bladder closer to the nerve pathways that surround the bladder. 
So anything can act as an irritant, sometimes just spontaneously, and you get that same kind of uh, contraction and frequency and urgency and all the symptoms associated with it. So it's a result of a problem in the mucosa, which is the inner lining of the bladder itself. So what do you do about it? Well, there's a couple of things you can do about it. One, there's these chemicals that you can put a catheter in, infuse into the bladder, make you hold it for a while, and then do it out, and you do that two or three times. Not real fun, but neither is the symptoms, but it works. We don't do that a whole lot because there actually is an oral medication that you can take that will help with this. It's a medicine that, called Elmeron. It's the only one available that treats this particular problem. What it does essentially is it goes in and it fills in the potholes. So it takes a while. It, it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, just like it takes 25 people from the Augusta Waterworks Department to fill in a pothole out on the road here, right? <laughs> it takes six months to do one pothole. Well, this medicine kind of works like those folks because it's going to be a slow process for that to occur. But over time, it will solve the problem. And just like the overactive bladder, this is not necessarily a permanent thing. It waxes and wanes. It's on and off. It's over and under. So people taking this Elmeron medicine after a while will get better. Quite honestly, sometimes if we suspect that's the problem and we don't want to put somebody through the hassle of a cystoscopy looking in there, we'll give them a trial because this is a pretty innocuous medicine. It's not going to really cause any other problems, but it's also not going to help anything else. It's not going to mask anything. So if you take this medicine and don't get better, you probably don't have that problem. So it's a way we can diagnose. If you take it and do get better, there's no question that's what's going on because it won't help anything else. So hopefully that clarifies this evil triad of urinary tract infection, overactive bladder, interstitial cystitis. Uh, if that's clear and that makes a little sense, give me a little hearts or a thumbs up so I know that I'm, I'm connecting there with you. Um, if that makes sense, uh, just let me know so I make, I make sure I've covered that properly. Now, I want to kind of move on to another topic that is incredibly common and incredibly crazy for folks, and that's incontinence, loss of urine. I mean, that is the bane of so many people's existence because A, it's so incredibly common. Thank you, babies. We'll go into that in a minute. But it is a real issue for many women, and I don't mean to make fun of it. It's very serious, and it creates a lot of problems both physically and psychologically, so we take it very seriously. Let me, let me divide the types of incontinence because I think it's important that you understand because they're very, very separate, very different, and they're treated very differently. Highlight, underline, exclamation point. They're treated very differently. So you basically got, and, and incontinence simply means losing urine when you don't want to. I mean, that's the bottom line. So, there is what we would call stress incontinence and we would call urge incontinence or detrusor instability. When I first heard the term stress incontinence, I think, well, okay, what, what does that mean? I pee on myself when I'm stressed? Yeah, no. Basically, the stress it's talking about is the stress on the tissues. In a nutshell, stress incontinence is an anatomical problem. And let me illustrate. I brought my little... How many times have you seen this on Facebook? 
I brought my little model to illustrate the anatomy. Now, so let me point out a few things here. This is the vaginal canal. This is the neck of the bladder called the urethra. This is the bladder here. This is your pubic bone. And this is the uh, rectum back here. And this is your friendly uterus. I had to tape it in because uh, it tends to fall out and do a self-hysterectomy and I didn't want to have that happen in the middle of the video. So most folks don't have this tape holding their uterus in place, just so you know. What happens with stress incontinence? Well, what happens is this area right here is, you can see it sits right on top of the vagina. This area is held up by some very thin musculature. It's called the urethra and, and uh, the pelvic diaphragm. Those muscles naturally get stressed, and I'll show you this in a minute what's important. They naturally get stressed and stretched with things like childbirth, pushing, having a baby, weight gain, anything that puts pressure on these tissues here, the pressure that comes down and is applied here, anything that pushes on that is gonna weaken those muscles. Well, what happens when, for example, you cough or you sneeze, this muscle that normally holds us into place kind of bulges down a little bit from the pressure. And when that happens, it interferes with the little valves there that hold the urine in place and whoop, golden shower, that's what happens. I mean, how many times when you cough or sneeze, you're trying to you know, close your legs or, or cinch down to prevent that from happening. Well, it's because the anatomy, that bladder drops down, that urethra rotates. Very, very common. We see it also with what we call organ prolapse, where if this uterus descends, these tissues weaken, and you get what we call a cystocele, which is where the bladder bulges into the vagina. Some people will describe it as a feeling like there's a golf ball down in the vaginal canal. And all that's secondary to the anatomy, basically weakening those muscles due to a variety of factors. I mentioned childbirth, weight gain, straining often, heavy lifting women who work in very manual labor jobs where they're doing a lot of lifting, we'll see a lot of pressure there. So whenever you put additional pressure, like sneezing, like coughing, it really pushes that bladder down, out comes the urine. So that's different from the other type, which is really a medical problem. But let me stick with this, this problem first because these are treated very differently. The incontinence problem secondary to the anatomy really has a couple of options. You've got surgical options and non-surgical options. The surgical options are largely things like the old-timey bladder tack. Over the past several years, there was the use of vaginal slings with mesh and other uh, fashion, other artificial things. Basically what they would do is try to artificially elevate this and support it, to hold it into place. So they would try different ways to, to keep that where, where it should be. These little slings would come down from the pubic bone and literally go around and act like a sling to, to hold that urethra in place. Well, the good news is they can work for a lot of people. The bad news is, is they cannot work for a lot of people, or they can work for a little while and not work for a lot of while. But with this type of incontinence, it's one of the only choices. It's one of the only approaches. You have to do something to the anatomy to correct that problem. And 
we've gone through so many different gyrations, even since I've been in OBGYN, as to how to best treat it. When I first went into practice, we all our procedures were done when we made a little bikini cut and went in from above and lifted the bladder up and, and sewed stitches there to hold it up. Well, that changed a few years later to doing most of the work vaginally where we tried to support everything vaginally. Well, next thing was all the, the mesh with the slings, trying to find ways that we could support it in different ways. And the reason we kept looking around is because nothing was really perfect. Nothing was correcting the problem permanently. Now, granted, there were a lot of women who had these procedures and have done magnificent, have done wonderfully, but unfortunately, it's far from perfect. So it really comes down to, like anything in medicine, does the benefits outweigh the risks? And we've gotten to the point now where there is a specialty called a urogynecologist, and pretty much that's all they do is these types of surgeries because generalists like myself don't get to do those that frequently. Many of us, now there's still some generalists that will, but many of us now get the urogynecologist to do these procedures simply because they do them more frequently, they do them more often, and that's the kind of person you want doing something like this. Now, I mentioned there were some other options. Yes, there are. Uh, there is collagen or contagen that can be injected peripherally to the urethra. So they actually will inject, use, uh, use this stuff that they'll inject in here that it will harden and solidify. Again, the whole idea is to hold this up. So they, they uh, will use that. That has been helpful for some people. Again, everybody's different and has to be evaluated for the individual situation. I just wanted to touch on what options are out there. Just get your mind going if you're having this issue. There's also a little device that can be placed in the vaginal canal that literally holds, it's kind of like a pessary type thing for those of you who are familiar with that, that literally holds the bladder up and holds that urethra in place. In fact, sometimes we have used pessaries for folks that are having problems like that. So those are kind of the non-surgical approaches. Uh, I mean, the, the, the reality is it's very frustrating for a physician because we don't have a lot of great options that we can just say, bang, this is gonna work and it's gonna work great for you. I know it, I know it, I know it. It just doesn't exist. I'm gonna look here, there's a question about slings. Okay, they ask about uh, uh, the mesh uh, and the pelvic floor issues, yes. now. There's a lot of controversy still surrounding the mesh. People use different products. Some people used uh, a person's own tissue as the sling. The meshes by and of themselves uh, really in most instances worked quite well. The problem became people who were using the mesh that used it improperly. Now that doesn't mean that if you had a complication from mesh that your doctor did it wrong. Absolutely not any surgical procedure potentially is going to have complications. But we know that it's exceedingly important, especially in mesh, to use it in an appropriate fashion. But there's a lot of people who have mesh, mesh slings who are doing quite well. Uh, complications include things like erosion, where the mesh actually erodes through the vaginal wall or potentially even into the other tissues. Uh, there can be pain associated with the slings depending on where they're placed and how they're placed. The biggest side effect and the biggest problem is sometimes they just don't work. Uh, but 
if, if you are working with someone who has, does a lot of these procedures, and that would be my first question when you talk to someone about having a procedure like this is, do you do a lot of them? Are you experienced? How many have you done? Are you good at it? What's your complication rate? Uh, that's the kind of questions you need to ask when you're considering that kind of procedure. And my suggestion is either talk with the urologist, there are some urologists who are very well versed in these, or, or talk with a urogynecologist. And that's going to be your best person to give you the pros and cons. And more importantly, to look at will it apply to you? Is it appropriate for you? Is it something that's really going to benefit you? Because just like medications, every person needs to be evaluated for surgery as to whether it, uh, it's right for them. And there's some other procedures that are done that are much more extensive that we combine with uh, other types of prolapse problems. Uh, for example, some people will, if their uterus is down, they'll need a hysterectomy along with that, but we don't want to muddy the water and go into that. So that's stress incontinence. The other urge incontinence is where your anatomy is good, everything's fine, but the bladder itself is, is just, whether it's from this interstitial cystitis or whether it's from uh, the detrusor instability or whether it's from the overactive bladder, you get these spasms, you can't control that, and you get the urine leakage. So as we mentioned earlier about the things like the interstitial cystitis where you get the frequency urgency burning, you can also get interstitial cystitis with incontinence. That can be a cause for the incontinence. So as we mentioned, that type of incontinence, surgery won't help, in fact, might make it worse. So the worst case in the world is to be incontinent and have the wrong thing treating you for that type of incontinence. So it's critically important that you see your, your healthcare provider to be evaluated for the type of incontinence. Like anything else, you need to know a cause before you can apply the appropriate treatment. And there are plenty of medications, there's plenty of uh, treatments available for the overactive bladder for the urge incontinence. Uh, there's even some kind of new type procedures using Botox injections and, and a lot of stuff that are more common in the realm of urology. But there's a lot of, my point is there's a lot of options. So I just want to make sure you understand that there are choices and options, but it all starts with the appropriate diagnosis. You don't want to have one procedure for something that's not going to touch really uh, what your problem is. Good question. Just so, thank you, Christy. Uh, uh, there's a question about what about over-the-counter bladder products. Most of those are what we would call urinary antiseptics. They're not antibiotics. They're not going to cure a bladder infection. Their primary objection is to help with the symptoms. They can help with the pain, the burning, the discomfort, possibly even some of the urgency. But if it's a true bladder infection, the over-the-counter antiseptics really will not cure that. Same, sometimes they make people uh, a little complacent because they get a little bit better symptomatically, and then maybe a week later the symptoms come back. Well, the fact was that they just kind of knocked them back but didn't knock it out. Now, the, there is some reasonable scientific evidence that things like cranberry juice or cranberry tablets, I know people have heard that a lot, 
using that as either prevention for urinary tract or to reduce urinary tract. And there is some scientific evidence to support that, absolutely. There is some evidence that some of the, the stickiness of the bladder is decreased by the cranberry and it makes them less likely to adhere to the bacteria, especially the most common bacteria to call urinary tract infections called E. coli. So we know that the bacteria will stick to that lining and if it sticks there, it just attracts more. It's like a big sticky party. They all just kind of hug on each other and that starts the infection. Well, if you prevent them from sticking, they're floating around in there and they just get peed out. So the cranberry juice could, can and does have some scientific uh, evidence that it's, it's of, of some benefit. More kind of from a prevention standpoint, again, once you actually have an infection, it's probably not gonna cure that. Uh, drinking plenty of fluids, we all hear that. Well, there's a lot of truth in that because anything that helps flush things out, it's like when we do surgery and we're closing the skin, we get saline and fluid and we flush that incision out just to physically remove as much bacteria as possible. Well, the same thing goes with drinking plenty of water. That makes you go more often and you flush things out. So that certainly can be a preventive. We see people who urinate after intercourse. Remember how I told you before with that honeymoon cystitis, getting up and urinating after intercourse sometimes helps flush out that bacteria that was introduced during sex that increases the likelihood of the infection. So that's something that we recommend people do that have that problem. Uh, but again, most of the over-the-counter products are more kind of prevention, uh, symptomatic treatment, kind of like Tylenol for the bladder, if you will. Um, yeah, Christy was asking about a tampon-like product. Yes, absolutely. There is a, a product, I want to say it's called InCare, that is over-the-counter that's like a tampon, and it fits vaginally, vaginally, and uh, we'll pretend my finger is a tampon. It's probably the first time I've ever said that live, but it goes in and it literally acts as a support and a barrier for that bladder so it doesn't full, fall down when you cough or sneeze. And for some people it can be effective, especially if the anatomy is not too severe, if you don't have that much in the way of droppage. So um, that can be a, a benefit. And I may be wrong in that name. I'm sorry, it just left me, but I, it, I think it's something like InCare, but it, it's over-the-counter. It's the only over-the-counter product specifically for that that I'm aware of, but it can be beneficial. In fact, for years, some people used tampons for that reason, and it did help. And that's what spurred them on to develop this product specifically for that issue. Again, it'll do nothing for the urge incontinence or the overactive bladder or the interstitial cystitis. All right, gang, that's uh, looks like uh, I've been rambling on for about 40 minutes. That's all I've got for tonight. Uh, looks like we've answered any of the questions that uh, have come up. I really, really enjoy doing this. I hope this has been beneficial to you. If it has, put a comment in the section. Tell your friends. What I'd like you to do also is if you have any family members, friends, workers, associates, uh, people that you know that you think might benefit from being a part of this group, add them. It's a very simple process. You just go up to the little thing that says, uh, you know, add somebody, and, and basically it sends it to me. And, and I can promise you, because I really, I, 
I, I feel very, very trustful of the people in this group. Uh, I, I've looked at each one of them, and I really respect their opinions. And if somebody recommends somebody, uh, I can almost guarantee you uh, I'm going to approve them. So feel free to do that. If you've got somebody out of the area and you feel like that they would engage and get something out of this, absolutely get them on this. Uh, I'd love to, love to have them a part of this group and to interact with us. So if there's not any other questions, and I don't see any more, make healthy choices. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Women's Online Wellness Podcast. To join the conversation, access show notes, and discover bonus content, join our private Facebook community by sending a request to Women's Online Wellness. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to hear more, just head over to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and leave a review. For questions about the podcast or to get more information, email Dr. Eaker at R-E-A-K-E-R at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, choose to be healthy. Mm-hmm.